Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I'm doing okay. Doing pretty good. Uh, so this week on the show, we are interviewing, we have interviewed Carla Deering, who is a candidate for mayor of Louisville on the Democratic side. She's the second person that we've interviewed who's running for that office in two weeks. So we do plan to, to interview the other folks running for this office, but but we do have Carla Deering this week. She is, um, she's founded and sold a few companies. She now is running for mayor of Louisville after, and also she has a background serving on several boards in the city, including at uh, Jefferson Community Technical College and uh, TARC. And she was instrumental in the Louisville Urban League track that was built uh, a year or so ago. That is Carla Deering. Uh, yeah, it was a good interview. I think it will give people a really good overview uh, of her candidacy. What did you think, Jasmine? Yeah, I think with such a big field in the Democratic primary for mayor and a lot of newcomers, I think that these interviews with the candidates are really helpful for me, at least, um, I'm learning a lot about the candidates, and I, I thought this was a good interview. Yeah, I've I, you know, last week we had Shamika Parrish, right? This week we had Carla Deering, both of whom I've spoken with in the past. But I learned a lot about both of them during these interviews, and I really hope that it, you know that that trend continues. Hope that you find them valuable as well. But uh, before we get to that interview, we have plenty of things to talk about. I am actually going to jump east of Louisville and talk about the Lexington mayoral race, which is heating up a little bit. So I have a segment about that. Jasmine has a a mega Louisville policing update. Uh, Lots and lots of things. If you want to get the full update, you have to subscribe to the newsletter because she's only going to talk about uh, some of the things in the update. So we'll, we'll do that. And then we'll close with a COVID update. So plenty of stuff to get to. Let's get started by talking about the Lexington mayoral race. Jasmine, did you live in Lexington during a mayoral race? You probably you probably did, right? Uh, you were there for more than four years. Yes. Yeah, I guess you were probably there for one of the Jim uh, Gray. Yeah, ones. I was there for when Jim Gray first got elected. When he first got elected, yeah, because he unseat he unseated Jim Newberry. Right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, I yeah. was there for both Jims. Yes. That. Yes. That's right. It was the Jims. That's right. Yeah. That was a very that was a very interesting race. Uh, but anyways, we we are going to be talking about Lexington's mayoral race. I was there for two, I think that one and the one before that, I think. Um, no, anyways, doesn't matter. Uh, we talked <laughs> we talked last week in a quick hit about uh, a new candidate entering the Lexington mayoral race, uh, and, and we did want to dig into that a little bit more um, uh, this week. So so the candidate who actually entered the race last week, his name is David Klober. Kloiber, I think it's Kloiber. Um, and he is a first-term LFUCG council member. He represents the 6th District, which is in northeast Lexington. That stretches from, you know, like where Broadway turns into Paris Pike. So, like, kind of northeast Lexington. And then it stretches all the way down to, like, south of Hamburg. Um, so, like, that area of Lexington, if you're familiar with the city. He took over for Angela Evans, who we actually had on the show once upon a time a couple of years ago. Um, and she she left to attend Princeton University, when she left to do that, he ended up running for that seat unopposed. So Mr. Kloiber is the president of the Kloiber Foundation, with, who lists as its mission uh, providing students and educators with the technology necessary to enhance their learning experience. With access to these tools, students are more engaged in their education and can learn and prosper in new and exciting ways. So the website for the Kloiber Foundation actually says that he took over the foundation. So it seems like his family has been uh, important to the Lexington community as people who have a foundation named after them for quite a while. Uh, But it does kind of seem like from at least what I can tell, David did set the current direction of the foundation more around this uh, intersection of education and technology. So that's that's kind of who he is Uh, in his first term as a council member. Housing and gentrification have been high on his list of issues. Kluber said that affordable housing was the biggest issue in his district during the campaign. And then back in April, Kluber sponsored an ordinance which won committee approval, which would have Lexington's Planning Commission use, quote, all tools, unquote, to combat housing scarcity. So I, I read a little bit about that. Uh, it seemed like it did ruffle a few feathers. Uh, Steve Kay, who's been in the Lexington 
uh, political scene for quite a long time. Seemed like he had some serious reservations about it, but it did pass the committee. And then in September of this year, the council allowed the use of something called ADUs, or Accessory Dwelling Units, uh, which, which kind of helped to increase density and reduce the ho- cost of housing. I don't know if the Kloiber's efforts with, with his ordinance um, w- was directly connected to this a- a- approval of ADUs, but it seems like they're, they're at least somewhat related because, you know, he was pushing for this in April, and then in September, this the, the Lexington Planning Commission came forward uh, and, and, and pushed for these things, and they got approved. So the, the accessory dwelling units is kind of like, uh, Jasmine, if you if, and also for everybody in Louisville, if you're familiar with, like, old Louisville that converts a lot of the carriage houses into like apartments for people to live in. Um, mm-hmm. That would be like an accessory dwelling unit. And, and in Lexington, you're actually not even allowed to build those or have those, um, but they are now, uh, which would help in, improve density, reduce the cost of housing. That's kind of the idea there. Okay. Kloiber's work so far seems focused on, on a version of urbanism that I think fits pretty well inside of Lexington's university community. Um, you know, anybody who is a geographer for a living, and I would say that Lexington probably has more geographers per capita than any other city in Kentucky, uh, this is going to be, uh, this is the type of issue that's going to be attractive to them. Kloiber is also much younger and, and less experienced than Linda Gordon, and he, I think he has a lane to kind of run in as a, as a kind of an outsider candidate if that's the the way that he wants to do to do that. So that's him, but of course we have an incumbent in the Lexington mayor's race, and that's Linda Gordon. And and she announced just recently that she is in fact going to run for re-election. I, I don't really think that was too much up in the air. I think everybody kind of assumed she would, but she did confirm that she was in fact going to run for re-election. 2020 was really, really tough for, for mayors all over the United States. That's something we've talked about. I think Greg Fisher probably suffered more than almost anybody in the whole country in terms of his actual standing in a city uh, in 2020. But but uh, Linda Gordon, I think, came out pretty well. I would say that she survived it very well. I, I, don't, I wouldn't say she thrived. I don't think she was overly creative or visionary in the way that she approached the Black Lives Matter protests or various COVID-19 issues facing Lexington. But her, her administration was extremely calm competent uh and and they kind of got the job done i i would say that from from my standpoint that's kind of the way i would describe the way that linda gordon handled that and, and i think that that's mostly what she promised when she ran and won a huge victory back in 2018 over ronnie baston um you know she she exudes competence and and management ability and i think that's what she provided and really i think a big a big thing about what was needed uh last year I will say a big knock on Gordon among some of the more progressive folks in Lexington is that she did not support eliminating no-knock warrants and pushed the council to keep them as a tool for their police department. The council did vote to ban them anyway, and then Gordon chose not to veto the ordinance even though she could. I think what she said was, you know, I heard the voice of the community. It's very clear that they don't want those, even though I think they're a tool that we need to have. I'm not going to veto this. I'm going to let it stand. And that's kind of where where that issue ended up. I don't think uh, a lot of people were super happy with that especially more progressive folks in 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 lexington but that is what it is so jasmine you know you said you know you were in lexington for the the jim's race i was definitely there for that one i was there for the one before where jim newberry uh unseated Teresa isaac as mayor but but you know lexington i think is a city where paying dues seems to be pretty important so linda gordon Jim Gray, Teresa Isaac, Pam Miller, um, those are people who have been mayor of Lexington throughout time. All of those were vice mayors. The only person that uh, wasn't the vice mayor before being elevated to mayor was Jim Newberry, and he was really well known in the community. He had run for Congress in the sixth district, um, but but he, so he was he was well known in the city, and then he turned around and ran for mayor. Uh, Lexington is not really known as a place where newcomers to the political scene can make a big splash and and win that mayor's office. That is something that that uh, hasn't really been done in the recent past. However, I would say that politics has changed quite a bit in the past few years and and we're looking at the history you know pam miller i think was mayor in like the 80s so you know we're looking pretty far back here and, and things might have changed so Kleber could have um the opportunity to strike out with lexington uh in, in a new direction so you know i don't know it's very early days i think that lexington is probably has a more healthy relationship with the, the their mayor's race where they're actually waiting i guess until the year of the election to file to run uh and that there's a lot of ways that the race between the two of these people could evolve Kloiber and gordon and of course there is plenty of time 
for more people to jump into their race. So Jasmine, that's kind of where Lexington's mayoral race is is standing right now. Uh, what what do you think? Uh, what do you think about David Kloiber? What do you think about Linda Gorton? Um, wh- what's your prediction for the next couple of months in the mayor's race in Lexington? I don't know. I feel like I just haven't heard a lot about Linda Gorton's term as mayor. The thing that you mentioned that we've talked about on this podcast was that she didn't support like completely banning no knocks. And that is really the one criticism that I've heard about her. But I also haven't heard like any kind of like universal praise or or anything like that. And so I don't feel like I have a good handle on what would happen. I would assume that she still wins by a lot. Mayor Fisher had a more progressive challenger in Ryan Fenwick a few years ago and and beat him easily in the primary. I don't know if David Kloiber maybe has more name recognition or you know than Ryan Fenwick did because he is a council member. Um so but so I don't know if that race would be similar but um I think it might look kind of like that. Yeah, I would say it's probably a pretty significant difference between Ryan Fenwick and David Kloiber. The fact that he has been elected before, he serves on uh, in in the metro or in the LFUCG council. I also don't think he's quite striking out in as progressive a direction as Ryan Fenwick. Okay, um, I, you know he still is. I mean he's he's from like Hamburg. You know he's from the Hamburg district. Uh, he's not like. <laughs> He's not like from Chevy Chase or anything like that. You know, it's uh, uh, it is still like that. That's the that's the type of candidate that he he is. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I do think, though, the what you mentioned right there is a potential way that the race could go. That's part of one of the things that I said. It, it could evolve in any number of ways. And he could run like a really progressive campaign. I think he he has the bona fides in terms of, you know, working on the gentrification issue, which is something that's very, very important to that segment of people. Um, that's something he could certainly do. He might not. I think he has a couple of avenues available to him. And I'm, you know, that's, that's one of the things I'm, I'm still looking at. So I think you're right though. It's going to be difficult to unseat Linda Gordon, even though, you know, she isn't setting the world on fire. I don't think that that's really what Lexington wants out of their mayor. Um, I, I think that like the city as a whole is very satisfied and happy if the mayor is making everything work effectively and efficiently. Uh, and, and that's kind of the thing that I think, in my experience, is the most important to the community members there uh, in Lexington. So, you know, uh, as long as you're not like tolerating a massive hole in the middle of the city um, like we had there for, you know, five, six years or something, um, you know, that you'll, you'll you'll do OK. All right. Um, well, that's Lexington and the Mayoros race. Uh, let's move back home for us and talk a little bit about Louisville policing. Jasmine, what do we have to say this week about Louisville policing? Okay. First, we're going to talk about training materials, um, which we've talked about before on the show when your alma mater's student newspaper uncovered yeah. some racist training materials. Um, but We have some new ones to talk about. Um, So this past week, the Leo obtained 2020 LMPD training materials that contained some offensive and racist content about um, the Hispanic and Latinx community. So the curriculum involved learning aspects of Hispanic culture that may pose hazards to law enforcement. That's the word that was used in the curriculum. Yikes. Um, slides in the presentation referred to Hispanic people as more fatalistic and said that overt emotions are part of their culture. They also had slides comparing the differences between the Hispanic population and the American middle class, which is also kind of weird because they're comparing like an economic class to a whole race of people. Um, So yeah, it, looked pretty bad yeah that's also super weird to me that's like talking about their culture and you know comparing like hispanic people it's like very othering like there's no way that any member of the latino or hispanic population could be a police officer like and that just seems yeah or also like part of the middle class yeah american middle class i don't know there might be like also rich latin people and then also Yeah. yeah like yeah right also, a few weeks earlier, WDRB reported on the Department of Criminal Justice training, which is the statewide training 
that they use racist stereotypes in a human trafficking training where they were referring to like the different types of traffickers and they called one the Romeo pimp and one a gorilla pimp, um, which is really bad. Um, And they used a photo that had like a logo on it that said like it was from nappyafro.com. Like it, it feels like disgusting even like saying these things because that's horrible. This is like the fourth story about training materials and policing that we've, I I just don't understand why we don't just audit like every (laughs) single training material that any law enforcement officer is, is being exposed to it. Yeah. It's crazy. And I think the problems with this are some of the things like this department of criminal justice training are just flat out racist. But I think there's also really broad problems with the training that talked about like the Hispanic and Latinx community, like priming officers for some kind of like heightened awareness around like an entire group of people. I think that that is super dangerous. And then you said this word too, othering. It it just contributes to like stereotypes, assumptions about people and othering. And so Really disappointing that more of this stuff is uh, coming uncovered. Absolutely. Uh, this is just wild. I, I, yeah. And and you don't want to make excuses for people doing bad behaviors. But like if this is how we're training people, we're not really giving them much of a chance to like do good because it's you're training them to be bad. You know, we're training them yeah. not to do mm-hmm. the right thing. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. So there's a uh, segment number one. The next one, um, we've got a couple topics that have to do with the officers involved um, in Breonna Taylor's killing. So the first one is Miles Cosgrove's um, appeal of his termination. Miles Cosgrove was one of the officers who fired shots during the Breonna Taylor raid and the officer whose bullet killed Breonna Taylor, according to the FBI's analysis. And he had his, the first part of his termination appeal hearing last week. That Appeal is heard by the Police Merit Board. Former Interim Chief Yvette Gentry testified that Cosgrove did not identify a target before firing, that he reacted poorly under stress, and that there was no further training that could be provided to him that he hadn't already received that would have equipped him to handle the situation better. So this was the city, Metro, putting on its case in the termination appeal They concluded their case last week, but Cosgroves will have an opportunity to present his own evidence, um, but that won't happen until until December. I guess this is just like based on when the merit board meets or something. These hearings are all like kind of broken up over multiple months, it seems like. So that was just part one of the hearing. So we'll be updating that story you answered all but one of my questions on this and that mm-hmm. the last one is um Yvette Gentry is testifying because she's the person who actually fired Miles Cosgrove is that is that the reason she was involved yeah there? she was the interim chief at the time that he and Brett Hankison were fired okay all right that was my question and Joshua Janes Second story here is Jonathan Mattingly's defamation lawsuit. Um, So we have another civil lawsuit stemming from the Breonna Taylor situation. This time, Sergeant Mattingly, who was the officer who was shot in the leg, but also fired shots that night. He has sued Kenneth Walker, Breonna Taylor's boyfriend. Um, He sued Kenneth Walker's attorney, Steve Romines, for defamation. Um, so defamation, it requires four elements to, to make a case. You have to have a false statement about the plaintiff. It must be published somewhere. So that can be like spoken or written. Um, ha- there must have been negligence in publishing the statement. Or if the plaintiff is a public figure, you have to show it was actual malice. Um, and last, you have to the plaintiff has to show damages that there was harm to their reputation. Um, There has to be some kind of harm or injury. So the lawsuit claims that Steve Romans accused Mattingly of crimes he did not commit. Namely, Romans used the word executing Breonna Taylor at one point. And he also accused Mattingly of breaking into her apartment to frame her and Walker for crimes. 
The complaint says that the actual facts of the case were made public on September 23rd, 2020 with Daniel Cameron's indictment announcement and that Romines ignored those facts and made knowingly false statements. Roman said that Mattingly requested a retraction and that he refused and he stands by those statements now. <laughs> um, <laughs> in his response letter, Romine's also said that Daniel Cameron's statements about the case, which Mattingly is contending those are the real facts. Um, Romine says that Daniel Cameron's statements were proven to be false or highly misleading. So now we have the Taylor family... Brianna Taylor's family's lawsuit is already settled, um, but we still have Kenneth Walker's civil suit, Jonathan Mattingly's countersuit, where he has countersued Kenneth Walker, and now we have this separate defamation suit that was filed in Edmondson County. Um, it's in Edmondson County Circuit Court because the complaint says that Mattingly lives there. The mailing address, however, um, is a business address, and there's a footnote that Mattingly is in hiding because of these defamatory actions. But I don't know that it was Steve Romine's actions that are the, are the reason that he feels like he needs <laughs> right. to be in hiding. So um, Mattingly's attorney is Todd McMurtry. And Todd McMurtry is a Republican who primaried Thomas Massey um, for his congressional seat. So that may be where... You may have heard his name. He also represented the Covington Catholic student who sued CNN for defamation. Um, so he's represented a lot of like more conservative yeah. type people. This before. is this is the guy he primaried Thomas Massey because he didn't think Thomas Massey supported Donald Trump enough. Right. That was like his his stated reason for running. I believe. Um, yeah, yeah, I th think so. That's who this guy is. So, so Steve Steve Romines is a is a pretty. I mean, he's. He, I mean, the public figure part's probably true, right? He's he's pretty much out there. Uh, he's a guy who, um, you know, he's pretty. Well, I, that that standard is if the plaintiff is a public figure, uh, and okay. Jonathan Mattingly is saying I'm not a public figure. So Romines only has to be negligent in making the statement, not malicious. Uh, well, and he, so I think that there's going to be an argument as to whether he's a private citizen or a public figure, considering, you know, he gave interviews on national television. He has a book deal. Yeah. You know, I think that will be a question. Oh, I mean, that seems like lawsuit. something that he will certainly lose on that. I think, I mean, that's at least, well, I, the thing is that this is another question. It's in Edmondson County and that probably will be an issue too. I would assume Mr. Romines is going to get this move to Jefferson County. I think we'll see where it, venue might be an issue as well. And, and I don't know, I don't know what the, the circuit court judge in, in Edmondson County is like either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. Uh, so yeah, this is very, very interesting. Uh, it sets up a Todd McMurtry versus Stephen Romine's kind of trial. That seems blockbustery in terms of a, a, a trial. If it, if it actually comes to fruition, which it probably, it probably won't. Right. I mean, do you, what, what you, how do you think this is going to go? Yeah, I don't know. I'm sure there will be like motions for summary judgment this may not go anywhere at all. I, I don't know. I don't practice civil <laughs> law, but I don't know if Mattingly will be successful on the merits. It's going to be, it's going to be tough. I think it's going to be tough. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. But I mean, everybody in here, I think is going to be happy to get the attention. So, all right, let's keep <laughs> going. All right. Um, and then the last story I wanted to talk about is a pilot project that will start in Louisville beginning in December that will deserve that will serve as an alternative to calling the police um, during some kind of crisis or emergency. And Carla Deering actually brings this up in our interview with her. Um, but I wanted to mention it as well. It's called Dove Delegates and they will have community responders who will link people to appropriate services um, try to de-escalate situations, do on-site mental health screenings, transport people to a safe place. The pilot also proposes a behavioral health hub that would have like a 24-hour community respite center with mental health and substance abuse resources. And so the way this would work is there will be certain situations that can be handled by Dove delegates rather than the police. This might be 
for, um, you know, someone in mental health crisis, um, a situation where there's no like active dangerous situation, but maybe someone won't leave somewhere they've been asked to leave situations like that. And so I think that this is really could be a really good thing. And I'm really interested to see um, how it gets off the ground and what they're able to add to that. Because I think that the behavioral health hub that they're talking about that has this like safe place type center, I think that would be really good for Louisville because, you know, I've seen so many things in in my job where um, people are charged with like low level offenses that end up getting dismissed. and, And a lot of the reasons they get taken to jails, juvenile detention centers, it's just because they're not in a safe situation, but they just don't have a place for them to go. And so something like this could be really beneficial and keep people out of the court system who don't need to be there. Yeah, I mean, this is a problem that people who've been watching the criminal justice system have noticed for ever, I think. (laughs) Yeah. So, So it is really good to see. I mean, you know, it's really good to see that something's starting to be done about it. And, you know, I think that that's really great that the mayor's office or, or the Metro Council or whoever put this together um, are, are doing it. I mean, the police department, I'm not really sure who's behind it. Um, you know, I I think the, the difficult part now will be implementing it. Um, and we have seen a couple of other cities do things like this. Um, you know, hopefully the execution goes goes well, um, so that it can be can kind of be expanded and and rolled out as a full on program. Because I do, yeah, yeah. And this program was modeled after other cities that have something similar. Yeah, I, I, it's just you know you mentioned it. Like it's just there's so many people th- that take up so much of the court's time, and, and that has so many ripple effects because you know the court has to deal with all of these tiny little things that don't deserve to be there and they take up time they take up effort and they take away people's uh you know ability to deal with things that really are thorny problems and, and that stuff that really needs to get dealt with so you know it just de- decreases the the g- amount of good work that can be done across the board so hopefully you know this will have all kinds of uh you know second third order effects that make make the criminal justice system work better than it does All right, Jasmine, uh, you know, you mentioned this, but I'll say it again. Uh, You have written many other policing updates. And if people want to go to tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter and sign up to get the newsletter, you can read ones about like the police and JCPS. Uh, We got uh, uh, stuff about uh, KSP troopers. Um, We got all kinds of other stuff in here. So, you know, we got lots of stuff that we didn't get to here and you can read about it in the newsletter if you'd like to. All right, the last thing we want to talk about before we get to our interview with Carla Deering is COVID. Jasmine, it has been a bad week for COVID-19. Cases rose slightly. While the rise was more in line with a plateau uh, than a new rise in cases, we did see our first day today, which is uh, November the 17th, over 2,000 cases in more than a month. That's a bad milestone to have today. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we're plateauing at about 1,400 cases per day. In the early summer when we had our plateau, we were averaging between 200 and 400 cases per day, which is a lot, lot lower than what we were seeing um, right now. Uh, so so we are too high to be plateauing. We need to go down significantly from here. If you're looking for a little bit of a uh, you know silver lining to this to this rain cloud, it is that the growth rate is already starting to slow down in this increase. So if we are following a pattern, we should start to see things leveling off and coming back down. Uh, I don't know if that will maintain, though. It's just something we're going to have to track. As of today, there are more than 60 counties in the red zone. That's more than 25 cases per 100,000 residents. That's a significant deterioration from last week. And right now, there's only four counties in the yellow zone. So we are way worse than we were just a week ago in terms of that the map. After a big rise in cases last week, Louisville's numbers case Louisville's case numbers actually came down a little bit, but only to about 1400 cases. You know, we were at 1600 cases the week before, we're at 1400, and just a few weeks ago, Louisville had gotten all the way down to 977 cases. We'd gotten below 1000 for the first time in a long time, and that ha- was not able to be maintained. So hopefully, 
where this reduction will continue to continue this week. Uh, we will see soon enough. Lexington is on much more of a plateau. They did not go back up nearly as high. This is numbers according to the CDC for Fayette County. The average number of daily cases rose from a low of about 53 to 61, but the overall cases has only really risen but per population from you know 17.4 to about 19 so that it, when we're looking at per population numbers lexington has had a much much more modest increase than louisville so lexington um doing a little bit better than louisville and that is likely due to vaccinations so we can talk about that a little bit also with children now able to be vaccinated our vaccine statistics have jumped up significantly just a couple weeks ago, we were only seeing about 1,700 people get vaccinated on a daily basis. We are at nearly 5,000 per day now. So that's that's pretty good. We had that pretty significant correction that knocked our vaccination totals down significantly. We had very way fewer counties that had achieved a 50% vaccination rate, but we are back up to 41 counties now having a 50% vaccination rate, 11 counties with more than a 60% vaccination rate, and then Fayette County by themselves is at 70%. So I am not I'm not at all surprised that Lexington has been able to maintain a much lower um, case low case rate than than Louisville or mm-hmm. anywhere else because their vaccination rate is just a lot higher. Yeah, and, makes sense. Yeah, Louisville's not too far behind though. We're at like 64, 65, we're at third behind uh it's Fayette, Woodford and Jefferson now. Deaths due to COVID continue to increase, but there is hope that there might be another plateau or decrease coming soon. Uh, the 14 day death the 14 day Average number of deaths rose from 34, rose to 34 from a low of 28, but the seven-day average has started to fall. So, you know, the seven-day average is obviously a lot more bouncy, um, but it, it, it absorbs new information a lot quicker than the 14-day average. So the fact that the seven-day average has started to fall is probably a good sign, but we don't know. We're going to continue to watch. It's really hard to predict the week-to-week trends for death. I just hope that there's fewer of them. The number of hospitalizations has started to creep back up. We got to a low of 758 hospitalizations for COVID across the state on Thursday, but now we are up to 776. So like with the number of cases, the number of hospitalizations has only seen a modest rise, but they're still very high. So we're, we're rising from already a very high base. We need to get those things down so that um, even if we start to plateau, um, it, isn't, it isn't with as much pressure on the hospital system. In terms of news about COVID, Andy Bashir announced on Wednesday that every adult is now eligible for a booster shot. Um, they weren't enforcing uh, the, the booster shot recommendations requirements too closely. You and I both were able to get one without much of an issue. They didn't even really ask me any questions. I don't know if they asked you any questions. No. I just kind of self-reported that I was eligible for one and they gave me one. But now you don't even need to do that. Um, everybody who's an adult is now eligible for a booster shot. So if you have not gotten one, you should get scheduled and get one. And then lastly, Kentucky has crossed over 10,000 deaths. This is a very solemn occasion. Andy Bashir announced that a memorial would be constructed for the people who have died due to COVID that would be there on the Capitol grounds. Amanda Matthews of Lexington has designed it. Um, you can see a picture of what it's going to look like there. So that is also coming our way. All right, that's it for this part of the show. Let's get to our interview with Carla Deering. Carla Deering is a Democratic candidate for mayor of Louisville. This is her first run for political office. She's a successful businesswoman who has founded and sold multiple companies. Currently, she is the owner of Velo, which describes itself as a firm specializing in providing expertise on strategy, growth, and access to capital for Black, Brown, women, and LGBTQ-owned companies and projects spurring development in West Louisville. So Carla Deering, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're very glad to have you join us. Uh, and, and, you know, always great to hear from people that are running for big offices like mayor. So, you know, politics in a city the size of Louisville, you know, tend to be somewhat insular. I think it's fair to say. However, in the past, outsiders have been able to break through. You know, John Yarmouth and Greg Fisher both never held office before, you know, being elected to, to Congress or, or mayor. You know, as somebody who yourself has never held an elected office, tell us a little bit about what it's been like trying to break into the Louisville political scene. Well, um, it, it is a factor, definitely. Um, you have to figure out who the operatives are. 
You have to, you know, map kind of almost a heat map or a power map of the city. When I say city, I mean the entire Louisville metro area, you know, to find out who knows whom and and where. So that mapping process is something that I didn't have naturally, like many people do, you know, after they've hung around in the political scene for a while. So that's something we've had to do quickly and purposefully, I would say. Yeah, and that's that is kind of a, a tough thing, and that that's an interesting exercise. I would actually be really interested to see what it looks like, you know, after this is over. I'm sure uh, a lot of people would like to get their hands on something like that as well. So that's a it's a very interesting exercise. But you know, the political scene is one thing, but you've of course made your mark more in in, in the business scene and in, in the business and venture capital scene. And you're not a native to Louisville. Um, that this is a, you know a home that you've moved to, so that's another kind of scene that you had to, to to break into. And and the boards of your various companies have included several of the most sought after advisors and funders in Louisville. Um, and, and I'm interested, first of all, like what it was like uh, for you breaking into the business scene, and, and whether you can take any lessons from there uh, as you uh, move to to politics. And then also um, how the how your connections in the business community have been helpful to you in, in the race so far. Sure. Well, one one quick thing about um, your description of my business experience throughout that period, throughout my entire career, I've actually kind of gone back and forth between business and nonprofits. And even when I was working in businesses, I might be, you know, extremely engaged as a volunteer, uh, you know, with nonprofits. A good example of that would be like the Jefferson Community and Technical College Foundation Board, which I had been on for 18 years. And through that entire time, I was kind of using my business experience to try to help mission-driven projects. So back to the point, though, in terms of breaking into the business scene in Louisville, you know, when I first moved here from New York, I was actually still commuting back and forth to New York, running the company that had just been acquired by a Boston-based bank, State Street. Well, it was Investors Bank and Trust at the time, and then they were acquired by State Street Bank. So I think I'm a lot like a lot of professionals in Louisville who live here but don't necessarily work here. Shortly after that, I was the founding CEO of a national nonprofit, Community Foundations of America. And so our work was in every corner of this country. You know, granted, our office was here, but it was everywhere. So a lot of my career in Louisville, I have really been working more on a national scene. And so have a lot of other people. During that time, how I really got to know the business scene in Louisville was first through volunteer activities like the college, like the track, and and many others. And then also in this last startup that I worked on with Stephen Riley, we co-founded a company and that was ultimately acquired as well. You know, then I really, we decided to raise capital. And so I really jumped into the startup ecosystem here in Louisville. And that, uh, you know, that gave me a crash course in what we are doing today, uh, what is available, and especially got me really engaged helping other founders as well, you know, who are trying to navigate the startup ecosystem in Louisville. And recently, I got put on the board of the Commonwealth Seed Capital, which is one of the state's funds for trying to fund the ecosystem. And I'm sure I'm on there because primarily because I have experience as a founder. You know, so anyway, long story short, lots and lots of touches and ways to get get to know people. And obviously, all of those relationships are key to me now as I'm getting the word out on my candidacy and also fundraising. Yeah, a, a lot to that answer. Uh, so thank you very much for it. Thank you for the note about, you know, your your nonprofit experience. I, you know, you're on the board of TARC, I believe, too. And you mentioned the track. And that's, the, um, I believe, the one that that. I, I guess it's finished now. That's it's been launched and everything. So yeah, that's the Louisville Urban League's mm-hmm. track out on the West End that is now called the Norton Sports Health Sports and Learning Center. Yeah, right. The, it's so funny when I say track, people are like Churchill Downs. Right, right, right. No, that that of course that was a big a big project that that has been ongoing for a while. And I know, yeah, that's that's been a big project here in Louisville. But you you, you know you you had mentioned also uh, you know all the boards that you you'd served on, and I am kind of interested. The community involvement, and you mentioned like community involvement and service as something that's key to, you know, your your ethos as the person that you are. Um, you know, you've gotten a lot of skills in in business, um, but but you know, uh, what about the service that you have, kind of in the community? What what uh, besides just like 
connections and networking. Um, are there any skills there that you think would be able to be applied to, uh, you know, being being the mayor of Louisville? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the people who know me from all those corners of the city know um, know me as someone who takes my business skills, puts them to the mission, and really gets things done. There are, you know, there is art on campus. There is a building built. There is another building built. There is a program that started. These things exist today, um, you know, based on really coming together as a group and mixing up that business experience with the mission work. So it's a lot about how do you get things done in an environment where you're mi- where you're combining business and mission work. Uh, And I think that that is actually very relevant. Um, You know, I really committed myself in these last few years to doing that full time. And and as as uh, you mentioned, Jasmine, I, you know, I've been doing that specifically for women, black owned, brown owned, LGBTQ, you know, any any what what is sometimes called an underrepresented founder or project where my skills can really um, you know, my business skills can really make a difference it, it, in combination with some great leadership and great relationships that that these organizations already have. It, that's all part of the formula of what I know needs to happen in the city next. And so it's, it, you know, it is directly related, Robert. Yeah. You know, all that work is directly related for me to this very moment. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, you're back on and what you've talked about so far is, you know, business consulting, startups, venture capital, and the service that kind of goes along with working uh, in, in those industries to, to build the connections and everything. But your background is a lot more complicated than that. Um, you know, you, you, I, I've heard you talk about growing up poor in, in Michigan and then attending the University of Michigan. I actually, in research for this interview, found a picture of your varsity volleyball team from the University of Michigan. From, <laughs> oh, so that, was, that was pretty geez. funny. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then you attended the Booth School of Business before starting your successful career. Uh, and, you know, there's there's a journey there. And I'm so I'm interested in hearing you talk about um, how you bring the whole of your experiences to this job if, if you are elected. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, you know, I was saying that uh, being one of eight kids in a, in a big family, um, you know, it, you know how you, you said we were poor and you know how you don't know you're poor, <laughs> but, but certainly, you know, at, at the beginning of the school year, it's not one new pair of school shoes. It's eight new pairs of school shoes. It's tight. It's very, very, very tight. And, uh, you know, we were loved and that, that is important. We were a close family, but it, but it was very tight. And that did, uh, that did influence me. Um, I worried about, you know, I watched uh, my family be concerned about that, and I worried about it as a little kid. And um, by the time I got to Michigan and I started studying political science, I got really interested in policy. And then I was like, wait, I should study money, too, because policy and money are both, you know, very connected if you're going to want to make change. That was the beginning of me understanding that I wanted to spend my whole life trying to create opportunities for other people. I I chose to do that from a strong financial place, you know, learning the financial side and and, um, because I really found early on that that I think money is very, very key to change. And I really want to be strong in that area. But I I really the the thread that runs all the way through from the. you know, from the concerns I had as a kid about our family struggling to finding some opportunities for myself and making them work. Um, you know, I had both need-based scholarships and academic scholarships to college and, and it, it, made, it made it possible for me. And, and I just really realized then that I wanted to use my skills for that. And I have bounced back and forth. It's a little eclectic what I chose to do. But now, you know, I have an opportunity, I think, to make the biggest difference of my entire life, um, you know, uh, with the theme continuing of making opportunities for others. And that's, you know, that's what I believe that, you know, I think that's the best use of my skills and my background all the way up to this moment. You're also attempting, you know, to become Louisville's first woman elected mayor. So, you know, is there anything about your experience as a female founder that informs how you're trying to win in politics? Yeah, definitely. 
you know, the, the, the management style that I bring, you know, some people would call it a female management style. Obviously, there are lots of exceptions of all kinds, but I probably would call it a female management style too. It's really about, you know, bringing people together, creating a shared vision. And then from there, your job is to support others in being able to deliver the vision. It's not a top-down command and control thing at all. It's exactly the opposite. It's, it's empowerment and empathy. That has been my style throughout my entire career. And it, I feel strongly that that is exactly the style that is necessary for Louisville right now. You know, so it starts with really listening. Mm -hmm. Um, and bringing people together. And I think, uh, you know, I think that one of the differences that I'm bringing is I, when I say bring people together, I mean everyone. And I've been doing that for several years now, and I really actually don't know how to start something creative and exciting without everyone at the table from the very beginning. So what do I mean? Everyone. I mean, all the stakeholders, all the people whose voices are left out, all the people who are doing the work, including the business people and the universities, you know, really, really saying, look, we're trying to solve some big problems. We're trying to have a shared vision. If it's going to be shared, it needs to really be shared. When you center those voices, all of those voices, in, and then move forward and support people in the execution, that is the kind of thing that I believe Louisville needs right now to get out of its kind of stuck position that we're in, where the status quo has, has definitely ca caught up with us. So circling back, that's really the only way I know how to lead. That's a formula that worked for me in every part of my career, including all the way back to on the volleyball court or on the tennis court. <laughs> you know, it, it is a woman's style and um, it's, it's a style that I believe right now can make a big difference in Louisville. Yeah. So you brought up bringing everyone to the table. So I wanted to ask you in your introduction video, you talked about the kitchen table and having difficult but necessary conversations with all communities in the city. And, you know, that that is a departure from a lot of the political leadership that, that we've seen before. Um, but at the same time, consensus is really hard to build with a place with as much diversity as Louisville. Um, so how do you think these kitchen table conversations lead to meaningful policy change? Yeah. Well, one part of it is recognizing where great conversations are already happening. And one example of that is that is in um, the path forward, you know, which, as I understand, it was an organization that started like the week of the first COVID shutdowns to talk about how can we get enough toilet paper for our uh, you know, for our service organizations. Mm -hmm. But it went on to create an incredible, um, incredibly thoughtful, thorough community conversation about what needs to happen in education, policing, um, you know, safety overall, affordable housing and other kinds of things. And so part of when I, you know, we don't have to, we, we can start there. We can start, we will start there. There is no reason to, to start those conversations again or to some way, you know, some way ask all those questions again. That is a community process. And so how, how I would do that, I'd bring the leaders of that. Uh, and, and then I would say, who else do we need? We start right there with that. Who else do we need for these conversations? And uh, that's where my experience really comes in, because if we need the employers, we'll get the employers. If we need, you know, the state, we'll get the state. Um, and so, you know, really, you just it's you recognize when there's really a lot of good to build on. And I honestly, I could go on and on. I could tell you so many pockets where these conversations are happening, but they lack. They're not at the forefront. They're not at the forefront and they lack the sort of the heft of the leadership buy in. But that could be that can be plugged in quickly. So you, you take what's already been done, you ask who else needs to be in this room, you have those conversations, it, you know, is it consensus? Yeah, at a certain level, and, and at a certain level, I have always found in my career that in those conversations, you, you come to better together pretty quickly to identify, you know, these are the three core drivers 
that will make all the difference in everything we're talking about. And we agree on those, and that is our strategy. And then go for execution, right? And I, my job is to stay on the strategy, make people sure people understand it, make sure that we are, you know, develop an accountability structure for what we're saying we're doing, and then you know, constantly coming back to that and assessing ourselves. We will make mistakes. We will, you know, have problems. But what we'll do when that happens is we'll say, this was our process. This is what we were trying to do. Here's where we failed. Here's how we're going to fix it. So it's it, those probably sound familiar to you as being the kinds of conversations, you know, that work. And uh, so I, I'm basically saying that we're about we're about you know, between having not having the right conversations and not having the right people at the table, being stalled and being at risk of of continued decline, two degrees away is having the right conversations, getting consensus and beginning to have a shared vision for moving forward. You know, you can see that that's that's such a tiny space between those two and they lead to such different outcomes. That's you know, I want to step over that space very quickly with all of my colleagues and friends in this city and all of the top, you know, the leaders who are already doing the work. Let's just step over that space together and then unlock the potential of the future. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So we've, you know, we've we've talked a little bit about how your business experience um, can be helpful to your campaign and helpful, helpful to the job as mayor. Um, but I also want to talk a little bit about the differences between business and government. You know, our current mayor was also successful as a startup founder and as a venture capitalist. And the way he's brought his business sensibilities to his role as mayor have sort of been met with mixed reviews, um, I would say. So tell us a little bit about how you perceive the differences between being successful in business and successful in government. And are there parts of what made you successful in business that you would leave behind if you were the mayor? Yeah, I think that that's super helpful. I think that the biggest mistake you can make is thinking it's the same and it's not. Mm -hmm. uh, the timeframes are longer. The, the problems are far more complex. Um, you've got entrenched bureaucracy standing in front of you and you've got to be able to pick through the difference between is this just a barrier that is based on the past and we need to let it go? Or is this a real, uh, you know, a real consideration based on the experience of others and things that we need to be thoughtful with? So you really do need to be, um, you know, thoughtful and, and recognize that they're very different processes. The leadership style, though, you know, being able to ha having a different leadership style, I think, can be placed on both something that is oriented toward listening and learning and something that is oriented toward really making sure all the voices are heard and then and then you know deciding what the key elements are and um and you know focusing on execution etc i think that that style is different it's it's different than where we are in the city right now and it's needed so, you know, that I, I think the other kind of subtext to what you're talking about is I will need a combination of obviously very experienced people across the board, across the topics and the issues, but also a lot of fresh new thinking. That's going to be really different. It's not like hiring for a business. It's it's more than that. And um, there's more stakeholders. We've got the unions. We've got the the lifers. We've got the you know, we've got issues with how we're paying people. And, we you know, so I, I think that those are some of the things um, that are really different. You know, I plan to have an outstanding team, lots and lots and lots of people who think like I do about listening and learning and being strategic. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that's going to be combined with, you know, people's direct experience. I have a lot of people who are involved with the city, have been, will be again, uh, different kinds of people, you know, chiming in and advising me on, um, you know, the areas that we can be 
impactful. I wanted to just mention one other thing. I've gotten a very close look. Um, I joined the TARC board. Um, I was approved the day before the prior executive director um, was fired, stepped out, resigned. Um, and I've had a very close view of uh, of the operation since. And um, I will say that I I think that there you know there there the principles of what needs to get done there and what is being done, which is stronger board governance, uh, stronger financial stewardship, stronger focus on technology and innovation. You know the the list goes on. Um, I I'm guessing that those same issues kind of apply across the board where we could get an awful lot more out of what we're doing now with being guided by those principles as well as being guided by a shared vision for you know a more equitable Louisville a more sustainable Louisville there's a lot more we can do with what we have and I've seen it up close and and you multiply that you know that's one of 26 directors that reports to the mayor you multiply what we can do there, you know, times 26. It's a lot. Yeah. It's a whole lot. Yeah, uh, I, I think that that's absolutely the, tr- the the case, that there is a lot of things that we could do uh, with the right kind of leadership, um, which I think um, you have an interesting uh, thought process around uh, how it could be done differently. But we did also want to speak specifically about issues more than just vision and, um, you know, what you want to do as mayor. Um, and, and I would say the major issue that, that's been brought up to me so far when people talk about this mayoral race is public safety. Um, and, and, you know, there was a huge protest movement directed towards LMPD in 2020. Um, and, and really, there's a lot of folks who are concerned about the increasing number of homicides across the city, as well as a perceived increase in the crime rate. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, your vision for public safety specifically in, in the city of Louisville? Yeah. Yes. Well, number one, it is the number one issue. That It is my number one issue. It is the number one issue. Everyone wants to feel safer. What's very key to to what I'm learning and what my strategy is about, though, is that safety means different things to different people. You know, some people want the police to make them safer. Some people want to be safer from the police. The police themselves want to be safer. And I view all elements of all three of those as the safety services that we have to provide in this city. Not one, not the other, but actually all three. And I think if we think about all three of those and really using our, you know, being smarter about the way we spend money and about how we resource to ensure we're actually addressing all three of those, you know, you you end up you end up with a much more fair system and a much more effective system. I'd love to go about three levels down on that um, if you if if you wanted to. But one of the key one of the key points I think overall is that you know we're, there's an experiment right now happening. Um, Metro Council, University of Louisville, Spalding University, the Dove delegates. If if that's something that has. Uh, been on your radar. It's a it's a pilot program to divert the nine some nine one one calls that are nonviolent over to behavioral health uh, team who can really are in a position uh, are, are are exactly in a position to be able to um, deescalate and provide and and support put putting people in the continuum of care that that they need for what they're presenting, you know, which is completely different from, um, you know, a process of uh, of going through the police and jailing systems, right? Completely different. And that is a very good example of where, you know, if, if you think about using our resources very, very well, that frees up police officers to also do what they're trained for. And so those are just two small examples of, how, of what I mean by really being as smart, being as smart as we can be and, and as strategic as we can be on how we resource each of the different kinds of safety needs um, so that we will, you know, address everybody's concerns. And we have to set that as a baseline. Um, we have to be honest about it uh, right now. It, it, you know, we left things unresolved. In my opinion, we need to be honest that we are the city of Breonna Taylor and the aftermath. And I that, you know, 
there, there is no possibility that we can just move on like nothing happened. We need to turn back to last year and to that process and, and, and finish those conversations and show where we're making changes to address those core concerns. So, you know, substantively addressing where we're standing today and then thoughtfully providing all the safety services that are needed in, through a different uh, way of thinking about how we spend our money. Um, is is really the key, I think, with safety. Yeah, uh, a very- we're actually going to be talking about the Dove delegates on yeah at this the show week. today. Yeah. yeah. Oh, fantastic! Mm-hmm. That's very cool. Yeah, uh, very clear that there's a lot more to that answer uh, that you've cl- thought through. So it is really nice to hear uh, that that's something that you're centering, and it also feels like um, you're taking a much more holistic view of it. Uh, yeah, I- I'm sure you'll have plenty of opportunity to talk plenty more about this probably specifically, but we do want to talk about uh, at least a few more issues. Um, and-, and development, I think, is another big issue that people have been talking to me about. And, and just kind of like public safety, there's concerns in kind of different directions around development, where you have some people who really believe gentrification is a big issue and are concerned about people being forced out of their neighborhoods. And then you have other people that are concerned that there's really not enough development happening uh, and that Louisville isn't keeping up with its peer cities uh, in terms of of uh, attracting people to downtown or, or having nice commercial spaces for people to come to and, and that kind of thing. So, you know, given that that kind of dichotomy as well, what's your vision for development in Louisville moving forward? Yeah, I appreciate you laying it out that way because it's both. Um, my most important issue is the strategic focus on equitable and sustainable growth in the neighborhoods that have been held back. And so, you know, to use to to address your specific language, you know, if if you're going to get the city's attention, you want the city's money, you want the city's help, you know, we're going to be focusing on equitable and sustainable growth. And um, that means that it's going to be inclusive, have opportunities to address inclusivity. A good example of that is workforce housing needs to be closer to businesses and, you know, public transit needs to make it more possible for people to get places. And there's just, there's lots of issues that go to the heart of that. Gentrification is a concern. And I don't see any reason why we can't make a couple of key policies that will ensure that we don't have rampant gentrification. A little bit is something we probably can't avoid. But, um, you know, so to me, those are fundamental characteristics that we need to put into our approach. And there's no way if we don't, if we don't, if we aren't purposeful about that, we actually know exactly what the future looks like. We've seen it in other cities, some that are near us. (laughs) And, you know, so there's no way we are going to leave that open to chance. Back to the other kind of development, I think, you know, we do need, we need more business growth. We need to attract new businesses. We need to attract skilled workers for the businesses that we have. We need to empower the um, entrepreneurs and creatives um, that we have. We have many and we need many, many more. Where I will make the distinction is if we're, if we're the city that is being honest about our safety situation and working through that and being equitable and sustainable in our investments, the growth will happen. And, you know, you want to you wanna go gangbusters and grow in this city, come have at it. You know, if you want the city's attention and the city's money, make it equitable and sustainable. And I'm, I'm really excited about that. I think that that can unlock, I think that's another area where we are two degrees away from continued decline to unlocking the but but the right kind of growth and i want to again i want to step across that divide purposefully and quickly to start being in the new louisville yeah, it's certainly going to be a tough needle to thread, uh, and I think it it will be important that the next mayor uh, take on uh, the the entirety of the development issues that the, that Louisville's facing. Um, and, and it always is good to uh, hear other people's strategies about it. Sounds like um, you've definitely got a, a good plan there. So the last one I want to speak about directly, last issue I wanted to speak about directly. Uh, my friends on the Get Up board would be uh, were upset with me because they didn't ask this last week, but uh, about universal pre K. Um, do you support Louisville funding full day high quality? universal pre-K for all three and four-year-olds? And if so, how do we get there? Yes, 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 yes. (laughs) Now, you said the city. Uh, We're going to need the state. We're going to need JCPS. 
And um, the city has to lead and do its part by being an amazing partner to JCPS in, you know, in attacking this question. But, you know, just look at the data. Absolutely. No question about it. This is fundamental to our future and so key for putting all these wonderful young minds on a track for success. And so just let me say that when it comes to anything about education, my position is there's a hierarchy of what the state decides, what the school board decides, what JCPS decides, what the union collaborates and and does with that. That's all in a, that's you know, that's a continuum. What the what the mayor does and what I will do is I will look at every single one of our other city services and ask the question, how are we supporting? There's two key drivers in education, engagement and instructional time. And how is every single organization uh, department in the city helping in those two drivers as one of their three key KPIs, and Robert, I'm going to use my uh, startup vernacular, right? My, our, our key performance indicators, our key measures. Um, education will be one of our top three in every single department, but specifically, what can we do once again to make it easier for teachers to teach? Same way, same issue with the police, where it's like, let make it easier for them to do what they were trained to do. Yeah, I, I really like that. I, I think a mayor who understands kind of the position that the city's in uh, with the respect to the other uh, vehicles that fund and produ- produce education and the city, uh, and also a little bit of that visionary leadership about um, talking to all your key stakeholders, getting everybody in the same room, and then thinking about how we can all best uh, produce the best results we can um, would be a nice improvement uh, for education in the city of Louisville. But yeah, uh, I really like that answer. Thank you. All right. Before we let you go, how can people learn more about your campaign or support your candidacy? Oh, thank you. Um, I am at CarlaForMayor.com. And um, there is information about the issues. There's a donate button and um, uh, there is a launch video that I'd love everyone to see. Also, every single week we go live on Instagram on Thursdays at 1230 and we bring people up to talk about their vision for the city. We, uh, particularly young people. And uh, so we're, we, you know, I told you we're listening, we are listening. And so our ideas are still being shaped very much by the conversations that we're having and by the people who are coming up to talk with us, you know, informally and on Instagram. So those are some ways that people can get involved. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old KY pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our show on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter that comes out on Fridays. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we are doing for as little as a dollar a month. You could do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Dimcast Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.